Open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verses 35 through 39 is where we'll be. And as you're doing that, I want to welcome you to California time. Right? If you didn't know, daylight savings time happened. Um, my wife is always like, who has the right to change the time? Like, who gave us the power and authority to change the time? But we are now on California time and spring break is starting. I'm looking forward to getting a chance to go to some spring training games with my boys because their spring break actually starts this week. So I know spring breaks aren't all the same, but we're, we're in it. And this is like the best time of the year. So bottle up this weather, smell the orange blossoms and enjoy it because that's where we are. So Mark uh, chapter 1 verses 35 through 39, we're in this series called the gospel according to Mark. And my hope today is that two things. One is you would understand that word gospel more than you did when you came in. Uh, the gospels in the Bible are these first-hand accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, um, of eyewitness accounts of what's going on. Most people say, and it's right to say that the gospel of Mark is Mark penning the words of the eyewitness account of Peter, uh, specifically. So it's the eyewitness account gospel means good news. I want us to understand that, but the good news about Jesus Christ is how the gospel of Mark speaks of it. So the two focuses are, hopefully you'll have a better understanding of the gospel today by having a better understanding of Jesus Christ. So let's read this passage. Hopefully you have a Bible open or an app open, uh, Mark chapter 1, verses 35 through 39. In rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he, that's Jesus, departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we ask that leaving this morning, we may have a better understanding of the goodness of the good news and the reality of what it is by understanding your son, Jesus Christ, more and specifically understanding his power. God, I don't understand or certainly know the stories or situations of everybody in this room but that's what's amazing about you is you do. You know all things. You know the pains and the anguish that each person has. You know the delights and the joys that each person is experiencing. And you as the ultimate one are rejoicing with them. And when they're rejoicing and you're weeping with those who weep. God, we love you. And we ask that you speak to us this morning. Come to us this morning in the scriptures. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So I've already said uh, the name Jesus quite a few times in just starting out to read that passage and reading the passage and even in my prayer. Now you're in a church, a Christian church, and the name Christian has Christ within it and we speak about Jesus. But I would submit to you that every person in this room hasn't even really scratched the surface of how amazing Jesus Christ really is. Jesus has created a tidal wave in history, a tsunami, if you will, of people 
encountering him and some not knowing what to do with him and others' lives being totally changed for good or ill on the basis of encountering him, both in the flesh, people that encountered him when he actually lived, or people reading about his life. Albert Einstein was one of those. Albert Einstein, not a Christian, but a Jew, said this. As a child, I received instruction both in the Bible and in the Talmud. I am a Jew, but I am enthralled by the luminous figure of the Nazarene. You understand who he means Jesus, that Jesus of Nazareth. He's enthralled by the luminous figure of the Nazarene. Listen to the language Einstein's using here, luminous, like the lit up one, the glorious one, the l- glorious figure of the Nazarene. He says this, no one can read the Gospels, by which he means Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. No one can read the Gospels without feeling the actual presence of Jesus. His personality pulsates in every word. No myth is filled with such life. Jesus is too colossal for the pen of phrasemongers, however artful. No man can dispose of Christianity with a Bon mot. Bon mot means witty remark. He says nobody can dispose of Christianity with just some witty remark. And in fact, even somebody that's trying to pen, even really artfully with amazing prose about Jesus' life, he says you can't even touch it. Einstein, who's not a Christian, is like you can't even touch it. He's too colossal for that. Now I like starting out with this because there's people in this room who would self-identify and say I'm not a Christian. As Einstein himself said, and yet Einstein, even as one who would not claim to be a Christian, says Jesus is way too colossal to ignore. Now, when I think about the word colossal, I think about Magic Mountain. There was this huge roller coaster at Magic Mountain called the Colossus, which right now they're in the midst of reconstructing and adding some steel to it, and they're going to end up calling it the Twisted Colossus. But the first time I ever went on it, I ended and went, I've never been on a roller coaster before. Like, I've been on roller coasters, but until I went on that, I've never been on a roller coaster before. Because it was colossal, which means huge, powerful, titanic. Einstein says that about Jesus. He's too colossal for the pen of mere phrasemongers. And no one can dispose of him with just a witty statement. So why would we study the gospel of Mark, the gospel according to Jesus, the gospel about Jesus according to Mark for so long? Tim Keller says it really well in this book, Jesus the King, and I just want to steal his lines exactly. He says, I trust that you will find the figure of Jesus worthy of your attention, unpredictable yet reliable, gentle yet powerful, authoritative yet humble, human yet divine. Just stop there. This is the amazing part about Jesus. You just sang a song that said lion and the lamb. Those don't seem to go together, right? Listen to all these things that don't seem to go together. Get your attention. Unpredictable yet reliable, gentle yet powerful, authoritative yet humble, human yet divine. I urge you to seriously consider the significance of his life in your own. Keep that quote up there. This is what we want you to do going through the Gospel of Mark. I don't care if you've been a Christian since you could ever remember. Going like, I was birthed a Christian. Or if you're going... I don't even know if I am a Christian or this is very new. To every one of you, we urge you seriously, seriously, not kind of, not guy go to church every week, seriously consider the significance 
of Jesus' life in your own. So the passage that we're in today just feels like a normal passage in the Gospels. Jesus gets up and prays. They say, everybody's here again. He says, I need to move on and preach. And then he goes and preaches and casts out demons. It feels like that's the Gospels over and over and over again. But in the Gospel of Mark, you see this, that where Jesus comes because of his power, things change. He creates ripples, and at many times, he just creates all-out tsunamis in individual hearts, in families, in communities, literally stilling storms, casting out demons, and really upsetting the religious establishment. He came with power. The Apostle Paul, who wrote the most of the New Testament, has a phrase in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 20, where he says, the kingdom of God does not exist in talk, but in power. The kingdom of God does not exist in talk, but in power. It's a little like what Einstein says. You know, you can, no matter how artful the pen of phrase mongers is, Jesus is colossal. Paul's saying the same thing. The kingdom of God does not exist in talk, but in power. Now, earlier in Mark chapter 1, Jesus says that in his coming, and in his entrance into the earth, and his coming on the scene, he says the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So he's saying, now that I'm here, the kingdom of God, you can touch it. It's at hand. It's right here. And Paul says the kingdom of God, which Jesus is identifying as the gospel, doesn't exist in talk but in power. So we're going to look from this passage today how power comes through prayer, what power is, how power comes through prayer, proclamation, and presence. Power through prayer, proclamation, and presence. Power through prayer. Let's read verse 35 again. Jesus, rising early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. This word prayed does not mean he just momentarily in a couple minutes off the cuff prayed. This is deep, intense, long prayer. He wakes up early in the morning while it's still dark and he goes to pray. Now, regardless who you are in this room, you may go, that's nice. Jesus was a spiritual man. But the interesting part about that is we're Christians and Christians, like Tim Keller said in that quote, believe that Jesus is both human and divine. 100% man and 100% God. If Jesus is 100% God, why does he pray? And to whom is he praying to? All throughout the Gospels, you'll see this thing about Jesus praying and then power goes out of him in his ministry, in what he goes to do. Prayer and power, prayer and power. And Jesus seems to understand that he needs power because oftentimes he will remove himself to go pray. Jesus understands he needs power. And the question is, why does Jesus need power? Well, let's just pick up this idea of needing power a little bit. Last night, my kids um, finished dinner, and there's been something established in our home. I don't know exactly how it happened. I don't know if my wife taught them or I taught them uh, through what we've said or through what we've done. But there is this thing that after dinner happens, there's an expectation, and the expectation is for dessert, ice cream. So they'll go, are we ready to have ice cream? Or whatever the dessert is. Most often it's ice cream. And we'll say, wait, 
wait. And then they get really antsy. And my boys are in this phase where they love watching the Food Network. So they like um, playing Chopped. So basically they want you to put all the food out there and then they make um, something that doesn't look one fraction as good as anything that comes out on the Food Network, but neither here nor there. Um, it's cute at some level, right? Um, so they say, how about we make the ice cream? So they undo these chocolate eggs that are in this container because of Easter and they start throwing them in a cup that they're going to try to melt to make chocolate sauce. And then Yale gets out, and just to put this in uh, perspective, Yale's seven years old, and he's about this tall, and our counters are like this tall. So he takes the ice cream out of the freezer, and he plops it up on top of the countertop. And the whole time I'm thinking to myself, there's no way on that countertop he's going to be able to get the ice cream out. So I say, hey, buddy, I'll help you, in essence saying, you're powerless to get the ice cream out of that. It's, you don't have the leverage. The countertop's taller than you are. You've got to get in get the ice cream out and so they're microwaving chocolate and then soon enough you see him and he's trying to get it out and in a normal ice cream scoop that should make healthy balls of ice cream right he scoops and he gets like a thin film of ice cream and he puts it in and he puts it in you see about the fourth one he's looking at it like this is not working well I had offered my help he didn't want to access it but at the moment he found out he was powerless he said dad will you come and so I come and because I have the leverage I have the power to get one of those true balls of ice cream and then put it in but he was resisting that but when he realized he needed power he accessed it so Jesus seems to fundamentally understand he needs power and what he goes to do is spend time with the father now, this is really important if you want to understand Jesus. If the question is asked, if he's God, why does he need to pray? You need to understand something about God. Christianity fundamentally believes in what we call a triune God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We believe God is powerful. Not just powerful, but all-powerful. All-powerful meaning all the other gods of the nations, all the other gods that people believe, the Bible says, are not gods at all. There is one God, and this one God exists of three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is all-powerful. The theologians call that omnipotent, omni-powerful, all-powerful. God is, and God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So when Jesus comes on the earth and needs power, he understands power is not found in him alone, but it's found in God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So he communes with the Father, prays, spends time with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together, accessing power, because the Bible would say power comes from nowhere, but God alone, and this God is triune. So even Jesus, whom is fully God, understands that the power of God is found in who God really is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Prayer is entering into communion with the God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and accessing His power. Jesus came and became fully man as well. So he was showing us what it is to access the power of God by being in communion, which he had always been in for all of eternity with the Father and with the Spirit. 
This begins to help us when Jesus says these crazy things. Like in John chapter 5 verse 19, Jesus says this, Very truly I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his Father doing. Because whatever the Father does, the Son does as well. Now listen to that and think about it this way. Today you leave, you go get lunch, wherever you get lunch. You sit in a booth and as you walk to your booth, you see a man eating with a group of, another group of people. And this man's about mid-30s. Okay? You sit in the booth right behind him. So he's sitting here facing that way. You're sitting here facing this way. And you hear this mid-30s man say, you know what? I can do nothing by myself. I can only do what I see my father doing. And I can only say what I hear my father saying. If you heard that, you rightfully so would go, something is extremely wrong with that family. <laughs> something is really wrong. Like that's codependence on a whole nother level. A mid-30s man saying fundamentally, he will only do what his father tells him to do, and he can only do what he sees his father doing, that's crazy. That's absolutely insane. And yet Jesus, who is fully God, speaks about his union with God at such a level that he says, I can do nothing. I can have no power. I am powerless to do anything without the Father. And then Jesus says another crazy thing to you and I. And he says this in John 15, 5. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I remain in you, you will bear much fruit, but apart from me, you can do nothing. Now think about this. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. He also said, apart from the Father, I can do nothing, which he's saying, God is the powerful one. So powerful, you can do nothing. No one can do nothing outside of the power of God. That's literally what it says. But with God, we just sang that in the song Healer, nothing is impossible with God. Why? Because God is power. The kingdom of God does not exist in talk, but in power. So what is this power and what does it have to do with the good news, the gospel? Because Jesus came to pronounce the gospel. So he prayed to access power and then Simon and those who were with him searched for him in verse 36. And they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. Now stop there for a minute in verse 36. We've seen that there's power through prayer. Now we're going to see that there's power through proclamation. But it starts with Simon going to him and saying, hey, everyone is looking for you. Why is everyone looking for Jesus? Remember we said this, Jesus at the very least is an enigma to many people, but people cannot stay away from him. This is said about uh, really good athletes or really good business people or athletic teams that loved or hated, the best or never ignored. Jesus was never ignored, ever. Some people hated him, other people loved him, other folks were just massively intrigued, but he was never ignored and he was never ignored because where he went, power went. Where he went, things changed. Where he went, things got disrupted. So everyone's looking for him. The disciples come to him and they say, everybody's looking for you. 
And he says to them, let us go on to the next town that I may preach there also. One thing I want you to see is Jesus was never concerned with quantity. He was much more concerned with the quality of the way in which people responded to him. Side note, far more concerned with quality and what that means for you and I, if we're going to do what Tim Keller said, take him seriously, we better think more about how we're responding than the number of times we come to church or the number of times which that means something. But he's interested in the quality of response and he's very concerned with preaching. He believes fundamentally that power comes through proclamation. Okay, power through proclamation. Jesus preached the gospel and he says here, I came to preach the gospel. That's what Mark 1's telling us. If you read this all the way through, you'd understand Jesus came to preach the gospel and that the gospel has a power. Paul says this in Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapter 1, 16, Paul says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. The gospel is a power. Now, hear this, okay? The gospel is a power. You've got to follow this logic. This isn't hard logic. But the gospel is a power, according to Paul. We've just established God is power. So in a very easy equation, we could say God is the gospel. John Piper wrote a book by that title. God is the gospel. So let's break that down even more. What does that mean really when we understand this? So God is all-powerful. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Help that build out for us then what the gospel is. Let me start by saying this. Remember in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 15, 16, Jesus said, in his coming, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And the kingdom of God doesn't exist in talk, but in power. So the kingdom of God is power because God is power, right? If there's a kingdom in which God reigns and God is powerful, then the kingdom of God is power and the gospel is a power. So, Let's think about this for a minute. The gospel is a power. Let's, in more detail, speak about what the gospel is. I have an app on my phone that's a Bible study app. For all of you people that aren't tech, apps are applications that you can put on your phone and they do cool stuff. So if you like cool stuff, check out apps. But there's an app on my phone called Accordance, A-C-C-O-R-D-A-N-C-E. And I like Accordance because it brings up the Bible, but then it does word studies. You can find out what the word in the original language really meant. So in verse 38, and he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach or proclaim. When I push preach, it pops up. And if I look at the definition of this word, it says that preaching is to publish or to proclaim something as a herald, to noise it abroad to announce as a matter of fact. So let's stop there. It's to preach, to announce something as a matter of fact. As a matter of fact, not as a matter of advice. The preaching that Jesus did was the heralding of news. So start here if you want to understand the gospel. The gospel is news, not advice. 
Let me tell you the difference. I'm a father and I have two boys and boys, kids in general, I have four kids and kids in general have kind of a mischievous streak to them um, a little bit. So there's these moments where moms and dads are always teaching their kids, you know, what to do and not to do. They're giving them advice like no more monkeys jumping on the bed, right? I think we've used that before. So kids bounce on the bed. You say don't bounce on the bed, you'll get hurt. Or kids do stuff to walls, like take crayons and walk along the wall and just do this. So you try to preempt stuff like this as a parent, and you'll say things like, we don't throw anything but balls. We don't throw plates. We don't throw pots. We don't throw pans. We don't throw weights. Right? Whatever these things are, we don't throw this. We don't throw anything but balls. And in the house, we only throw soft, squishy balls. Not soft balls like girls play with, but soft, squishy balls. We only throw that. So then we'll say, what do we throw? And hopefully they'll teach balls. And that's preemptive. That's advice. But if now the kids are in their room coloring on mirrors with crayons and throwing weights that were at the bottom of balloons into mirrors and then all of a sudden you walk to the door and your kids have crayon and markers all over the face and there's crayon on the walls and they're throwing things that aren't balls and now one of the kids goes dad's here that's not advice that's news and the news means oh no that's a fact that's heralding a fact dad's here Mom's here. That's a statement of fact. When Jesus pronounces the gospel, it's not advice, it's news. And here's the news. The king has come. The news is the king, that's the news. The news is the king has come. Now think about it this for a minute. My house, I pay for. Okay, some of you built your house. And when you leave and your kids don't obey the advice and they begin to destroy the house, you're bothered by that. You're bothered that they didn't obey your word. You're bothered that they've destroyed themselves by having crayons all over their face. And you're bothered that they've destroyed that which you pay for or that which you've made. The Bible says that God made the world and everything that's in it. The Bible says that it was through Christ and for Christ that everything was made. The Bible says that you and I were made for Christ, that all of humanity was made for Christ, that all of creation, the things that we see and the things that we can't see, were made by and for God. But the Bible also says that in our rebellion of not listening to God's word, wasn't just like, oh, they forgot to obey, but that through our disobedience, hell was unleashed on the earth. Evil. And that hell was unleashed on the earth, not just by disobeying God's word, but by listening and obeying to the enemy, or who the Bible would call the devil, or Satan's word. And the Bible presents these two words, the words of God and the words of Satan, in very different ways. The words of Satan are out to seek, to kill, and destroy, and in fact have in each of our hearts in all of our families, in all of our communities, and in our world at large. That's the word of Satan, that when bought into, he is out. His purpose is to seek, to kill, and destroy. And then there's the words of God, which are words of life, which are words that still, to this very day, uphold the universe by the word of his power. 
which are words that bring healing and liberation and freedom. So fundamentally, the Bible sets up that the truth about the world, that there is a battle taking place, a cosmic battle, if you will, between good and evil, between God and the devil. Now, if you're sitting in here and you're going, this is nuts, right? You don't believe this stuff. I would ask you this question. If you think that when we begin to enter into conversations about the devil or about Satan, and you go, that's crazy. I want to ask you, how do you then account for the evil that's in the world? The evil, the stuff that's easy to define as wicked and wrong. How is it that humanity never learns the lesson of mass genocide? How is it that we can't look upon the Holocaust and say that's awful, but not some decades later, not even that far, not hundreds of years later, just a few decades later, we have people literally lining folks up, lifting up their heads and cutting off their heads and now through technology putting it on videos. How do you have around the world just evil, wicked evil, sexual abuse, exploiting children, trafficking children, Large levels of exploitation. The stuff that you just go, that's wicked. How does that keep happening? If you, in the end, don't believe fundamentally there's good and evil that's personified in God and the devil, what is that? And here's where it gets really close to home. Is that when Jesus teaches, he says these provocative things. We've said that. So he says things like, you've heard it said, don't commit murder. Don't behead people. But I tell you, if you've hated someone in your heart, you've committed murder already. Or you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I tell you, if you look upon a man or woman with lust, you've committed adultery already. You've heard it said, don't steal. But if you hoard and possess things only for yourself, you've stolen already. I mean, that's the logic. So the evil in the world, how do you account for it? But how do you account for the evil in your own heart? Why is it so hard for you to get over the hump? Why does it constantly feel like you're in bondage? Why does your family consistently feel broken even when you go, everything's going well, but there's still those certain things that aren't going well? Or you go, nothing's going well. In the end, what is that? The Bible's very clear that that's sin. Sin that's in the world that affects us at an individual level, sin that's in the world that affects us at a communal level, and sin that's in the world because fundamentally there is a cosmic problem with the world. Now look at this verse when you want to understand what Jesus came to do from 1 John chapter 3. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God, okay, be loud with me for a minute, let's just act like we're a Pentecostal church responding. Who's the Son of God? Jesus, okay. The reason Jesus appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The gospel, folks, is news that the King has come. And in the king coming, the works of the devil will be and have been destroyed because God came. Now, if you go the works of the devil and you presume for a moment you aren't a part of that, your heart in its sinfulness and in its wickedness has not bought into the lies of the devil. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. Jesus says these crazy things in the gospel where he looks at the most religious people and he says, you are of your father, the devil. First John talks about 
the devil, the, the enemies of God are the world, the flesh, and the devil. The devil enters into the scene and through us buying into his world, word, the whole world comes under the prince and power of this heir who's now the devil. The, that's the world and then the flesh. This sin, this rejecting of God and going the way of the enemy is what is in our hearts deep down. So now when you look at the problems of the world and you say, ISIS is a problem. Death is a problem in totally unhuman. Disease, financial problems, marriages that are in shambles, addictions, joblessness, insomnia, not being able to sleep. You add to the list of the things that you go, this is why life stinks. The Bible says it's because of sin. And the good news of the gospel is that the king has come back. The creator who made the world has come and he's a savior. And he is a deliverer. That in his presence he's come to destroy the works of the devil. So when Jesus has all these people coming on and he goes, here's why I came, to preach. To proclaim that the king has come. And then you go, if all preaching is, is words... Why then does every time he preaches things like demons being cast out in this very passage and he would not, I'm sorry, and he went throughout all of Galilee, verse 39, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Why is that? Folks, because he's the king, because he's the omnipotent God who has the power of God that when God comes on the scene and his enemy is there, he knocks him out. That's, that's what the king does. So the king sits with us right now and you go, I have all this stuff in me. He's saying, come to me and I'll knock it out. That's what repentance is. Sin, the world, and the devil are here. Jesus says, turn around and come to me. Jesus and sin are the opposite directions. And when you go to Jesus, sin has to be left behind because sin and the enemy will not be in the presence of Jesus, this is why you're going to see in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus comes on the scene and these demons go, what do you want to do with me, Jesus, Son of God? Because they know they're about to get knocked out. Right? They know that. That's, that's the moment of what happens. So think about it in all of the influence of what that is. The addictions in your life, the apathy of your life, the brokenness, the desire when Brian was talking about counseling to return evil for evil, that's all a lie of the enemy. That's what that is. This sense of entitlement that people should do something to you rather than I should consider the needs of more important than their own. The root of that, Jesus says, is the same root when you're trying to wound people with your tongue and lash out in them with the tongue is the same root that causes ISIS to behead people. So church, let's not be the people who speak of the horrors of ISIS while we do the very same thing to our kids or our spouses. And the only way, church, we get through that is in the last thing. Power comes through the presence of God. One word as we end. Look at what it says about Jesus here. In 39, and he went... And he went. This is the most amazing part about God. God could have left the world that he made to its own and let it 
fall into the destruction that we created for ourselves by not walking with him. But he went. Why? For God so loved the world that he gave. He sent his son and his son went. And Jesus walks throughout the gospels saying to people consistently, come follow me. Saying consistently throughout the New Testament, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. All of you who are experiencing the terrors and the horrors of sin. All of you who are blind and deceived by sin that's promising you one thing and delivering to you the very opposite thing. All of you that are in a place of bondage and brokenness. All of you that are in desperate need. Here's what he's saying to you. I am the king and this king is a savior. I've come to deliver you. Come to me. So whether you sit in this room and your marriage is torn apart or you're sitting in this room and individually you can't get over the hump and you're the one that's always standing in the way. Whether you're sitting in this room and you're terrified with fear and the Bible says perfect love casts out fear. Whether you're sitting in this room and you go, I've never believed this stuff, but th this gives a better account of reality and the personality of Jesus is pulsating in these very passages in scriptures and you go, I want to know him for the first time. Whether you want to know him for the first time or you want to come to him again and again and again because the way we got in is the way we go on. You keep going to Jesus because he keeps coming after you. He keeps coming after us. Here's the final word. Go to him. Go to him when you're weary and heavy laden and scared. Go to him. I literally, as so we were singing that last song, pulled up because it made me think of Psalm 91, and it says this, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, you are my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Jesus went, and he's telling you, come to me. We're going to have people up here to pray after this, and I encourage you, regardless of where you are and who you are, if you want to take the life of Jesus seriously and you want the power of him to come upon you, come up for prayer and let us pray for you. Let's pray. Father, we love you and thank you for your grace and mercy. The power of Christ, God, we pray that in your Holy Spirit would fall upon us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.